I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures, if you have it with you, and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, the words will also be on the screen behind me, beginning in verse 9. Returning from the tomb, they reported all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things, but these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away, away amazed at what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported, reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the thing, things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Historically in the United States, this Sunday, along with the Sunday nearest Christmas, are the two services in which most churches can expect some sort of bump in attendance, right? There may be many reasons for that. Sometimes it's just family tradition. This is what we do as a family. Sometimes it may be because of some connection to their past. It's really sentimental. Maybe some folks come to church on these Sundays because they think there's something meritorious about it. They're actually earning some sort of favor with God on these two perceived holiest of days, Christmas and Easter. But I think there's actually one reason I don't think we can afford to ignore why so many folks show up to church on Easter Sunday. God says through King Solomon in the book of Proverbs, 
that he himself, God himself, has set eternity in the hearts of men. That means that there are eternity-sized questions and eternity-sized puzzles and eternity-sized confusion and eternity-sized elements and dreams and ideals that are in the heart of every single man and woman. And often these sorts of elements remain below the surface for most of the year. And we distract ourselves with so many things in life that we don't dig down to get to those eternity-sized elements. And we do an excellent job of distracting ourselves. Some people try to change the world. Others just stay alive. In the words of Drew Holcomb, one of the organizers of the Moon River Festival here in Chattanooga. Ultimate questions are in the heart of every man and woman, and that means eternity-sized questions are in your heart. We've all asked the question, or at least questions like these, why am I here? Why is this happening? Why me? What's wrong with the world? And today, I would like us to wrestle with these eternity-sized questions using the passage that we have just read. And look at these questions in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I'm going to invite you to consider that the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate answer to ultimate questions. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate answer to ultimate questions. Ultimate questions like, number one, what is true and who can I trust? What is true? Who can I trust? As a general rule, we as human beings don't like to be duped, do we? We don't like to have the wool pulled over our eyes. And it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle we find ourselves on, we're skeptical of just about anyone with a different opinion or different interpretation, aren't we? About everything. And as we heard read, the disciples questioned immediately what they heard from the Galilean women who returned from the tomb, who told them that the tomb was empty, but verse 11 said it seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. Now, consider this for just a moment. If the disciples were part of some vast conspiracy to create a new religion, if they were trying to manufacture the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they could not have chosen worse eyewitnesses of that event than the Galilean women. And that may seem offensive to our 21st century ears, but the reality was, at this particular stage in history, the testimony of a woman was not valued, especially in the context of a law court. But Jesus showed himself first to women, distinguishing himself from the culture around him and highlighting his esteem for women made in the image of God. So here, the Bible records how skeptical the disciples were towards these women, women whom the culture at large believed were incapable of being trustworthy witnesses. 
Consider this. If the disciples had invented this story out of thin air, then they were pretty foolish to choose as witnesses these Galilean women if they wanted the culture to believe them. This is fact. This is, in fact, one of the many evidences that these accounts are not a myth. They are fact, not an invention. It's hard to miss in all of this, all of the doubt and skepticism surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. And the reality is not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? Perhaps even as a follower of Jesus, you would acknowledge in your own heart that you've wrestled with doubts concerning the validity of Scripture, whether or not you can trust that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And really, that shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Because ever since mankind's fall in the Garden of Eden, mankind has continually been searching for what is true. What can we actually believe? What is really real? Or in the words of Francis Schaeffer, what is true truth? So how would the angels and Jesus respond to that question? What is true truth? I think we find the answer here in our passage. And in two different episodes that we heard read, first the angels and then Jesus himself points his followers who are doubting, points them back to what Jesus had said previously. Jesus knew what was coming. His death and crucifixion was not a surprise. It was not some terrible plan or some plan that went terribly wrong. No, he had predicted it all because he had planned it all with his Father in eternity past. And so Jesus explains to his followers what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Now, wouldn't you love to have been a part of that conversation? Just imagine with me for a moment that you're taking a stroll across Walnut Street Bridge on a certain Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, and Jesus walks up and starts talking to you about the scriptures and how they point to his resurrection. That would be incredible. But then Jesus appears again a second time in a passage we didn't get to in verses 44 to 46. He appears to his disciples and he says this, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So mankind asks, who can I trust? And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, answers repeatedly, trust me and my Father. Jesus isn't his only witness. Listen to what God the Father said concerning Jesus in Matthew 17. God speaks from heaven concerning Jesus and says, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And listen to the words of John, a disciple of Christ. We accept human testimony, 
But God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his son. So whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony from God. Whoever does not believe God has made God out to be a liar because they did not believe the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life And this life is in his son. So did you catch what the testimony that God gave concerning Jesus? It was that God will give us eternal life through his son. And whoever doesn't believe God, according to these verses, is making God out to be a liar. So friend, hear me on this. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a casual passerby this morning that just happened into our service, Jesus, the resurrected, risen Messiah, calls you through the words of the scriptures to repent of your unbelief, to repent of your distrust of Jesus and the scriptures to turn from doubt to faith, to turn from skepticism to trust. And this invitation is an invitation to life, to joy, to true human flourishing, to freedom. So you may choose to reject the resurrected Jesus. You have that choice. But don't act foolishly and reject him out of willful ignorance. Because everything prophesied about Jesus is contained in the scriptures. And it all came to pass exactly as was prophesied. No one is more faithful and trustworthy than the God who gave us his word. So as a church family, we would like to invite you in your skepticism to be a part of our church family. Come wrestle with your doubts alongside of us in this community, in a safe place, a place where it is perfectly acceptable to ask questions and raise concerns and seek answers, and know that we will honor you in your questioning, and we will deal with your questions honestly. But perhaps you say, Isaiah, you don't seem to understand. The problem isn't with me and my unbelief. I'm not the problem. Just look at the world around us. War in Ukraine, more slaves in existence in our world than any other point in human history, believe it or not. Human trafficking, abuse, violence. All of these are real issues. And maybe you came here today hoping to hear some good news about the resurrection, and instead you're hearing that each one of us is actually part of the problem. And maybe you're thinking, but what about the rest of the world? So mankind asks, what is wrong with the world, and is there a fix? And it's, appropriate, it's an appropriate question, because creation is groaning, and we all hear the groaning. And Scripture agrees with that. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans. 
And whether we are followers of Jesus or not, that groaning reaches our ears and it tugs at our hearts. Naturally, we long for something better. But Christianity, among every other worldview, alone offers a realistic assessment of our world, as well as giving the solution and a solution that's filled with hope, a solution that includes both mankind and the world in which mankind has been placed by God. At our heart, deep within us, we all long for a utopia, for a perfect place. Maybe you remember reading reports about the Avatar Blues, back when the movie Avatar first came out. Do you remember any news reports about individuals who had watched the movie and were so taken in by the hyper-realism of the movie that they left the show and then became depressed in the following weeks? As one forum put it, thousands of people reported being depressed and even contemplating suicide after watching the movie due to the fact that they could never be part of Pandora the hyper-realistic world of Avatar. And one movie, reporter, uh, one movie reviewer reported something similar after watching Black Panther. He says this, A few days after watching a film that might be referred to as one of the most successful superhero movies of the 21st centuries, the feelings of euphoria, jubilation, and excitement I felt pre- and post-watching Black Panther were immediately replaced by a longing and being homesick for a place I'd only seen on the big screen. I missed Wakanda. I longed for this utopia of technology, innovation, and the peak of black excellence. These individuals are all tapping on something that's true. Something that's real. We all long for a beautiful world that isn't filled with garbage, that is healthy and strong, not filled with mean and angry and divided human beings, but full of goodness, full of beauty, full of truth. And friend, you may be sitting here this morning in pain and suffering, and in the harm that you have experienced, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, speaks in compassion and grace to you. He acknowledges your pain and the brokenness of our world. He himself was sinlessly perfect and yet experienced rejection, death, suffering, and forsakenness. But that's not the end of the story. He conquered death. He beat death at death's own game. And in Christ, we are promised that this broken world will be restored into beauty that we can't hardly imagine. God does intend to dwell with us. But that restored beauty in the presence of God will only be for those who realize they are part of the problem not part of the solution. And our part of the problem goes so much deeper than pollution 
or being good neighbors. Being or not being good stewards of the world we live in or not being good neighbors in our communities are symptoms of a disease. They're not the disease itself. And if you're honest, you know what it is to evaluate your hearts and your life and be sickened and saddened by what you see. So mankind asks, what's wrong with the world and is there any fix? And the risen Jesus answers, I died to save sinners and restore creation. Hear the words of Jesus in verses 45 and 47. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. Forgiveness. Justice. A couple of hot-button issues in our world today, aren't they? Just take the recent incident when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock during the Oscars. What does justice look like? Is there a place for forgiveness? Does forgiveness eliminate consequences? Vox.com recently had an entire article on forgiveness. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Vox, but it's no secret that it's not exactly a friend or a platform for biblical Christianity. But listen to the longings that lie just under the surface of this article. Do you see the title? Everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. Friend, do you want forgiveness? Then see the beauty of what took place 2,000 years ago. In order that we might be reconciled to God, the God against whom we have sinned, God himself took on our flesh The Son of God became man. In His perfection, He took upon Himself our sin. He became in our place our substitute so that the wrath of God might be laid upon Him. He died in our place so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And then God resurrected Him from the grave as an exclamation point that His sacrifice was accepted that his work was complete, and that forgiveness was now possible. He was resurrected so that you and I might live and reign with him. And that's why songwriters write lines like this, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside his crown for my soul. As another songwriter says, it might seem too good, too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. So perhaps you're wondering here if you could ever be forgiven by God because of the outrageous sins you've committed against him. And the answer to that question for any of us is yes, but only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
All my sin was so contagious. All my failing, so outrageous. Says the Savior, I will pay this. Praise the Savior, Jesus. Such a freedom. Who could earn this? Who could pay for this forgiveness? Says the Savior, it is finished. Praise the Savior, Jesus. But the good news doesn't just end with Jesus died to save sinners. That's really good news. And it can't be less than that. But friends, Jesus through the gospel invites us into so much more than that because Jesus died to restore his creation. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. And you and I, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, are raised with him. So consider the problems in our world. My personal sin and your personal sin is not the cause of every injustice in our world. And we ought to do all we can as men and women living within this world, a broken world, we ought to do all we can to love our fellow mankind by relieving suffering, by supporting justice, by caring for the vulnerable, by prosecuting criminals, by holding authority to account, and by creating a safe environment for all those around us. But the reality is, we need someone outside of broken, fallen humanity to fix, it, to fix broken, fallen creation. Jesus forgives our sin, but what about everything else that is broken that is not directly connected to my sin or to your sin? We need someone unlike us, someone undefiled, someone unstained by corruption, someone sinless to not only forgive our sin, but also to fix a broken world. Someone to hold accountable the murderers and the abusers, the adulterer, the rapist, the greedy, the arrogant, the proud, the corrupt, the oppressor. Someone who is powerful enough to sway nations, to capture hearts and affections, and to rule in righteousness and justice. Is there any such person? The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is that person. He will right all wrongs. He will protect all who take refuge in him. He will execute justice upon all who refuse to trust his word. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of this new creation. Yes, we await the final consummation. But Jesus declares as the resurrected king that he's making all things new. And friends, this is really good news. Both love and justice will have the final word. Every secret sin and abuse and suffering will be made right, and those who have clung to Christ will enjoy his presence in a perfected creation. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is proof positive that there, that there is a real reality that can be trusted, 
that he has taken care of our biggest sin problem, our biggest problem, sin, and that he is the hope for our broken world. So what should our response be to this good news on this Resurrection Sunday? Do you and I have a part to play in this grand story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? So mankind asks, what's the purpose of my existence? A pastor friend of mine in New York City makes this statement publicly quite often. Show me a man that can defeat death and I will follow him anywhere. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is insurmountable and it's irrefutable. Although you may have been told something different. But it takes an agenda of disbelief to view the evidence of Scripture and then walk away from it. So what's an appropriate response to the story of the resurrection? Look at verse 52. Then the disciples worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they continued, stayed continually at the temple praising God. So believer, what will you and I do with this good news? Well, we worship Jesus in community with other believers, proclaiming Jesus as Lord. It really is that simple. This is what the church has done for 2,000 years. No matter the sorrow or the suffering, no matter whether the winds of culture are favorable or not, we keep proclaiming God, we keep praising God in community with other believers, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and proclaiming that he saves. And not just with our voices on a Sunday morning. This is important and it's valuable. But with the totality of our lives, as you enter the workplace on Monday, as you interact with your children on Tuesday, as you hang out in your neighborhood and community on Wednesday, we joyfully submit our actions and thoughts and motives to the rule of the Holy Spirit. We worship Jesus in community with other believers, proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and that begins right here in Chattanooga, right here in Hill City. And every time we invite others to enjoy the good news of the gospel and to receive forgiveness of sins, we are actually fulfilling prophecy. That's what our Lord said. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed among all the nations. So this morning, we are fulfilling prophecy together, prophecy of our Lord, as we lift our voices in song, as we hear from his word to declare that Jesus Christ was dead, but no longer. He's alive. So what's the purpose of my existence? The risen Jesus answers joyfully worship and enjoy me now and forever. What is true? Who can I trust? Is there any hope for the world? What's the purpose of life? The risen Lord Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark 
when it comes to these ultimate questions. He died and was brought back to life. His answers are worth listening to. He invites you to trust his words, his works, and the words of his Father. He invites you to repent from your sin and receive the forgiveness of sins that he came to offer and to join him, anticipating the restoration of all things, even as he is making all things new. And he invites you to worship him in community and with other believers, proclaiming him as Lord. May God give us grace to do just that, even as we celebrate the resurrected Jesus today. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bow our knees and our hearts before you because you came, you lived, you died, you were buried, and you rose again. Lord Jesus, you are king. You deserve our worship, our adoration, our submission. You deserve every ounce of our affections focused upon you. You deserve every ounce of love that we can conjure up within us. You deserve every moment of obedience. Lord Jesus, you are king. And Father, we praise you that you sent your Son to die on our behalf that we might have life. So Father, even in a few moments as we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together and reflect upon the broken body of our Lord and his blood shed for us, may the enjoyment and the celebration of this supper be kept in mind in a way that remembers Jesus is coming again. He's not dead, he's not still on the cross, and he's not still in the grave. Father, thank you for answering life's deepest questions in resurrecting your son from the grave. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.